Welcome to another episode of Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. If you've read much Byzantine scholarship, you have occasionally, even often, come across the claim that, yes, the Byzantines called themselves Romans, but, you know, they really weren't. The Byzantine Empire wasn't really the Roman Empire. This is a very common assumption uh, in the field. Those statements are implications are then followed by what purport to be explanations or justifications for why we don't take the Byzantines at face value about who they were. And here one encounters a bewildering array of reasons and justifications for why Byzantium wasn't really Roman. Um, And and they range from the made up, like uh, the Byzantium was too small (laughs) compared to the earlier the ancient Roman Empire, as if there's a size requirement for being Roman, um, or that, well, it wasn't Roman because its government was run by eunuchs at the court, or not really Roman because what it really was was Christian, like as if Romans can't be Christians in some way. Okay, so clearly, I mean, once you are sensitized to this and you, you start picking it up and you realize that, okay, so we're just making up reasons to justify a position that we're convinced of in advance, like a priori, like we, we, we're not willing to see Byzantium at, in a Roman context and so we just kind of make up a reason for it. Well, there's a set of reasons that has been remarkably consistent um, over the last millennium or more. Uh, which are cited by Western scholars who want to deny the Romanness of Byzantium. And I say Western scholars because this doesn't happen, for example, on the um, Arab or Muslim side, where Byzantium is called Brum and understood to be Roman fundamentally, or even in the Byzantine sources, (laughs) which are pretty clear about that. Um, But there's a set, there's a core set of reasons that kind of follows that argument um, and they include such things as Byzantium wasn't really Roman because it didn't include the city of Rome. Well, most most of the time, like after the 8th century or something. Or because the predominant language in Byzantium was Greek rather than Latin. Or in some contexts, you might even say because the Byzantines were ethnic Greeks and not Romans like they thought that like, they're just, they're just Greeks who are mislabeling themselves. And this argument sometimes appears in Western historical writing down to the 19th century. Uh, after the 19th century, it tends to appear more in modern Greek national discourse. So the idea is trying to establish con- Greek continuity through the Middle Ages. You, it has to run through Byzantium somehow. And so one of the claims is that the Byzantines are just Greeks with some sort of false identity or something like that. But let's stick to the core here. The core has to do with, say, the city of Rome um, and language. Let me just say straight off the bat that at, at no point in ancient Roman history in the ancient Roman Respublica was a knowledge of Latin a, a necessary condition for being Roman. 
the Romans extended Roman citizenship and extended the boundaries of their polity to include people who did not speak Roman, and they did this knowingly and in deliberately, one assumes. And so, and there, there's never any legal requirement that one know Latin. This just wasn't understood that way. Um, nor, after a certain point, was territorial possession of the city of Rome like in, encoded anywhere as some sort of requirement for being Roman. The the Romans themselves kind of abandoned Rome as a as a center of government after after a while. Um, think of Constantine the Great or Diocletian before him visited once or twice. I mean, this isn't a, this wasn't a, a very important place except symbolically after after a while. So if these ideas don't come from antiquity, that is, they're not baked into the Roman tradition. Like if you study all of the ancient Roman tradition, you're not going to find these ideas recurring or even appearing anywhere. Where do they come from then? This is where the topic of our conversation today comes in. Um, and this is a, a ninth century Roman from the city of Rome in Italy named Anastasius, um, who had a very colorful life, which I talk about with my guest, who is an expert on his writings. She is Rekha Forai, a professor of history at uh, the University of Southern Denmark. And she has written some very expert um, and fascinating studies of Anastasius, his, his writings, his, his translations, and, and his thought in general. And I say translations because he was one of these very few Western intellectuals of the 9th century AD who was very proficient in Greek. Um, and so he, he could converse with the Byzantines on, on their terms, he could access their writings, and he translated some of them. Um, all of this, um, for um, ideological purposes, he was very anti-Byzantine. Uh, he had a, a very specific sense of the place of the city of Rome, which was his city, and the city where he made his career in sort of world history, but also within the Roman tradition. And so he was very unwilling to see a civilization that was Greek and centered on New Rome uh, displace the Roman one, what he thought was authentically Roman, uh, from its place in history. Now, as an important member of the papal court, he was positioned to articulate his beliefs on a number of occasions, um, especially when he ghost-wrote some important uh, diplomatic letters for Pope Nicholas I and then for the Emperor um, Louis II in Italy addressed to Constantinople, uh, the patriarch and the emperor there. And he encoded those biases in, in, in these letters, which were highly polemical, um, in addition to all those other re uh, reasons that he gave for denying Byzantine Romanists, he included other things that we don't use so much today, such as that you know, the Byzantines aren't Roman because they're always they're addicted to heresy and they they act in bad faith and things like that. For him, those were kind of part of the whole ethnic Greek background of Byzantium. He thought Greeks were sort of relatively untrustworthy uh, and of bad faith. But anyway, those ideas that he encoded in those very important documents, they they became very popular. Those letters were disseminated, they were read, they became templates for how in the West you denied Byzantine Romanists and how you, you attacked the Byzantines and disparaged them. And he has had an incredible influence over the way in which Byzantium is discussed. It has been discussed for over a thousand years in the West and 
like if you in a sense if you follow the footnotes like where is this idea coming from that the empire must have the city of rome to be roman and you must speak latin in order to be a, they really obtain their fullest codification in um, anastasius the librarian not that other people didn't have those kinds of ideas at the time you know they're, they're kind of they're much vaguer the byzantines had already begun to be called greeks in the west but he put together that's a programmatic statement, a set of arguments and talking points that eventually became a kind of template for how we talk about Byzantium. Fascinating guy, um, incredible life, uh, and, um, and his literary output also very important. Uh, I was so happy to find um, that uh, Rekha um, had studied him in very much detail, and so I thought I needed to have her on the podcast. Also, a shout out to Medievalists.net. Thank you for hosting the podcast on your site. And I hope that folks interested in the Western Middle Ages learn something about what Anastasius was up to and the very long reach that his uh, very powerful rhetoric has had uh, over the centuries. So here's my conversation with Rekha. Hello, Rekha. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm very glad that I came across your work. And it, it made me realize how much I, I didn't know about this fellow, uh, Anastasius the Librarian, that we're going to be talking about today, and how much I needed to know about him. So I'm, I'm very grateful for all the work that, that you've done on him and continue to, to work on him. Now, you wrote a dissertation um, on him that, that was back in like 2008. Are you continuing yes. to work on him? Are you, are you planning some, some more sort of major work? Uh, well, yes and no, in the sense that um, I continue to be interested in the institution of the papacy and the papacy's role in the spread of Greek learning in the West. Okay. So I, I kind of enlarged the, the chronological span and then Anastasius's work is included. In, I see. In and, and you've also done a lot of, sort of philological work on translation. Uh, yeah, that's that's my major interest, the, the, the translations from Greek to Latin in the Middle Ages. Okay. Well, why don't we um, give our listeners some background here. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about who Anastasius the Librarian was? Let's uh, just, just situate him in time and space and all the controversies of his age. Yes. So Anastasius Bibliothecarius' life spans through the greater part of the very eventful ninth century and in the city of Rome, where he rises to be one of the most prominent uh, and influential people at the papal court, especially for issues concerning Byzantium. Um, he's um, behind a lot of uh, paper letters, he's doing a lot of diplomacy, and at the same time, he's going to also be one of the most prolific translators from Greek to Latin in the early Middle Ages. And um, as most medieval characters, he's childhoodless, you know, we don't, we don't know right. anything about him, uh, about his life prior to showing up and stirring trouble on the international uh, political scene. When he appears in the historical records, he's already um, a fully formed, very ambitious adult. Uh, but actually with such a conflicting personality that scholars up until the 19th century considered uh, them to be two an angelic scholar translating the Greek and the diabolic politician. Some of the, mm -hmm. uh, if you look up some, some um, 
German, um, you know, a church lexicons, then you will have two items, one after the other. Right. So they split them into uh, two people and one yes. of them was, was more nefarious. Could you tell us a little bit about the nefarious activities that got yes. sort of, um, hived off onto the second? Um, yeah. 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 So actually the moment he shows up, he shows up as trouble. Um, so he's, um, his career spans through the, the, the papacy of five popes of the ninth century. So, and all his life is in a relationship with this one institution. Mm. And um, so he, we get to know him as a cardinal in Rome uh, under Pope Leo IV. And probably they were on a very amiable terms at the beginning, um, but he enters into a series of conflicts with him. Um, it's very hard to say what exactly were these conflicts. Um, the most plausible explanation is that um, uh, Leo IV didn't really have a um, Carolingian imperial uh, backup, uh, which Anastasius had. He had very strong connections to the imperial court. And so he was kind of used as an internal um, troublemaker. And uh, that escalated uh, very soon. He left his uh, cardinal position um, under, without the permission of Leo IV and other minor episodes. Anyway, he ended up being excommunicated, actually. And then Leo IV died, and the next pope was elected, Benedict III. Uh, then, probably again with a strong imperial backing, he became anti-pope. Uh, in a rather aggressive way, uh, you know, from historical records that he entered the, the St. Peter with armed forces on horseback and he destroyed the fresh frescoes that Leo IV just had been made, um, which actually de uh, depicted the council that, that excommunicated him. Um, so probably this didn't sit well with the Roman people because he couldn't uh, sustain um, this um, papacy. Even with the imperial backing, he was anti-pope only for three days. And then Benedict III was reinstated. And then uh, he had to kind of go into retirement, into a, into a monastery in Rome. Uh, the, um, he was abbot of Santa Maria in Trastevere. Uh, there is still an elegiac epigraph about him in the church, if you go in now, you can see. And so he was there for a while until the next pope, Nicholas I, got him out of there, back to the paper court as a secretary this time. And the next pope, Hadrian II, made him paper librarian. This is where his um, function dates from. Um, but also with Hadrian II, the, the diabolic person once more seems to show up because next to the strong Carolingian support, he had a, another very strong um, person supporting him, and that was his uncle, Arsenius, who was a, a Roman aristocrat. Now, this Arsenius had a son, Eleutherius, who wanted to marry the daughter of the Pope. You know, ninth century, we are before the celibacy. Um, Clearly. Rules. So popes had extended families. The pope uh, already promised her da his daughter to someone else. So Eleutherius and Arsenius ended up kidnapping the girl together with her mother. And in the middle of the whole plot, Arsenius, the uncle, died. And probably he was the driving force and the intelligence behind. 
I think there must have been some panic or we don't know what, but but without his uncle, the son, Eleuterius, just at some point ended up murdering both the daughter and the mother. You kill the hostages. Yes. And so Anastasius as a relative, it seemed at first sight clearly implicated. So he was actually stripped from his librarianship. We only see him back into the records after one year. So it seems that he managed to clear his name uh, quite um, convincingly. Otherwise, he couldn't be again the person almost the closest to the Pope if 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 there would have been any doubts that right. remained. Yeah. So that was the other shadow of in his life. Yeah. It, I mean, it sounds like a like a TV miniseries. Um, <laughs> His life really does seem, right? And there is more to it also. I, I always wondered how Umberto Eco didn't discover him right. uh, yes. for his next novel. Because another interesting aspect of his afterlife is that uh, you know that there is a medieval legend about uh, a female pope. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, Pope Joan. So um, it seems... So one of my favorite Anastasius scholars, Girolamo Arnaldi, did the research on this. So the, the legend of, of this pope, female pope, emerges in the 13th century. And at the beginning, there are various uh, versions which locate her anywhere between the 9th and the 11th century. But then there is a, a chronicon from the 13th century by a certain Martinus Polonus, which then becomes the authoritative version, and he gives uh, the exact date for this uh, Pope 855 to 857. Um, she was supposed to reign for three years before she was discovered. Uh, now, this is exactly the, the time between Leo IV and Benedict III, so it is actually the antipapacy of Anastasius, mm -hmm. which lasted only three days, but the Joan is there for three years. And also, it seems that that it's not just this 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 chronological overlap somehow had another impact on the on the story because in Martinus's version, this female pope is bilingual. She knows Greek, and she's learned. Right. So she takes over some uh, elements of 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 the, of the of the persona of. Um, Anastasio. That is excellent. I didn't know about his connection <laughs> with her. Uh, you know, I, I, I know about the, the Pope, Pope S. Joanne uh, legend, a, a Greek writer of the late 19th century, Roides, wrote a wonderful comic novel about her. And it's written in formal Greek of the time, Katharebusa. It's very elevated. And, and that language is so stuffy in the way it's used normally that when you use it for satire, it's incredibly funny. Uh. Yeah, Roilis. Uh, Pope, it's been translated into English, actually. It's a wonderful read. I recommend it to everybody. But I don't remember any hints of Anastasius in there. Anyway, no, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, this is a very eventful life. Um, so he's a, he's a native of Rome, right, at a time when the papacy is basically an independent state. And so, you know, anti-pope is about as high as you can aspire to politically, <laughs> I suppose. Um, I mean, you know, in, in in Italian politics of the 20th century, a three-day, you know, government wouldn't be entirely out of the question. 
Um, so this is just in the nineteenth uh, the ninth century, and then he he becomes a librarian uh, on and off, as you said. And well, can you tell us a little bit about what a papal librarian does in the nineteenth century? Because it sounds like a great title, but what exactly do they do? Yeah, so it's a relatively new function. Like the, it's it's a if we can trust the records, it's like a hundred year old tradition that the papacy has librarians little we know about it um of course obviously he was a custodian of books certainly um but also he was a kind of uh, not only a kind of archivist but also uh, who makes sure that documentation that needs to be there it's there like collection of all councillor documents important correspondence but he also had chancery duties composing letters definitely uh, we know that he drafted some of the letters of the popes. Um, possibly he was also heading the scriptorium, the workshop where manuscripts were produced. We have a, a marginal note by him to one of his translations, to the uh, Acts of the Eighth Ecumenical Council. And there is a marginal note in which he compares the, the Latin, the, the Roman bibliothecarius to the Byzantine cartophylax. And so he describes there some of the tasks. In that little note, the more important ones, his duties and privileges are like, no one gets to see the Pope or the Patriarch without his permission. No one can get a written document or a letter to the Pope without his permission until he has checked it. Also, we know it's a very high office. It's usually given to bishops. Wow. So it was a prestigious uh, task. Yeah, uh, so keeper of the paperwork, basically. Uh, yes. Which for, for a state that is so dependent on its workings and its ideology on paperwork is a key position. Yes, both um, incoming, outcoming, yeah. Right. And so when you, you mentioned the Eighth Ecumenical Council, this is the one in Constantinople because of the, the different numbering systems. So this is the one in 869, yes. 870, right? Which, yes. which was for the deposition of Photius. Yes. And yes. Anas yes. And Anastasius actually attended at the very end in 870. Yes. And if I he remember did. correctly, <laughs> so there were some papal legates and he wasn't one of them. He was there, I think, on behalf of Louis II of Italy. Yes. But he took a copy of the acts of the council back with him separately. And I think the papal legates also took a copy, but they were ambushed by brigands somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. So, and they were, they lost their copy. And he comes back to um, Rome with the only copy and makes a translation of it. And that's what we have. Yes, imagine. So, yes, he was sent to Constantinople. He was, uh, it's a perfect example of the right man at the right time, the right place. Right. He was sent, he was, he often had this role of double diplomat, both acting on behalf of Louis II and on behalf of the Pope. So he was there for a marriage negotiation for the emperor's daughter, uh, which failed to come through. But then, there was the council and there were paper legates, the official paper legates had no Greek whatsoever. So you can just imagine to send 
the, the lack of, of such such competency in the West when to, you send to such a high profile event two legates who don't understand anything out of it. So luckily Anastasius showed up, divine providence, says mm -hmm. the Liber Pontificalis, and he actually spotted that that they were given an incomplete copy to sign and he made them refuse to sign until the copy was complete so they made great use of his linguistic skills and then of course on the return they traveled for a while together and then they separated because he had to go to to report to the emperor first and then the the paper legates chose the maritime route and they got attacked by pirates and they lost the the official copy mm -hmm. and anastasius had his own personal copy and had he not done that we would i mean also when when he arrived with that copy to rome the the pope had to wait until he translates it's a huge document he the, the, had to wait till to sign and approve of it until the translation was made so you can see that this this knowing greek was such a capital for him and yeah so this is an age when pirates are interested in in copies of the acts of ecumenical councils <laughs> i don't know if i think it was a like a how do you say collateral damage yes, that yes, somehow maybe yes. <laughs> in the water or <laughs> yes i can imagine the scene what's this uh, uh nothing you would be interested in <laughs> Uh, anyway. no, no illuminations throw right it right right no pictures um yeah so you've you've mentioned a few times that anastasius knew greek uh which was very rare for someone at that time uh especially from rome and in his position do we know anything about how he learned greek only hints at it once in a very short sentence that that from which we can deduce that he probably learned it as a child at that time in the west if you would want to learn Greek, you you had to meet a native speaker. There were no dictionaries, no textbooks, um, no grammar books, uh, nothing of that sort. You you had to pick it up from a native speaker. And in the in the medieval West, you could only meet native speakers of Greek in southern Italy, where there were extensive communities, or you could you could meet them in Rome. Rome had a tradition of, of um, accepting uh, Greek immigrants uh, from these internal theological conflicts in Byzantium, like the, the Monothelite controversy in the 7th century about mm -hmm. the one will of Christ. So they had actually um, quite a few Greek monasteries established in Rome. According to one of the theories, it, he must have learned it in the monastery of St. Sabas. But we don't know actually that by the ninth century, the Greek community and the, the city of Rome, they don't have such a strong interaction as, as, as they had before. It could have been that he spent his childhood somewhere else, like Southern Italy. But what we can say for sure is that he, it had to be from a native speaker. And we also know that from references that he makes that he used native speakers later also throughout his translation. So, so he was assisted sometimes by, by native speakers. Yeah, I mean, it could have been something as simple as his family employed a Greek wet nurse or nanny. Yes. I mean, you, you know, if you learn the basics of the language up until the age of five, after that, if you want to study it more, you have a pretty yes. strong foundation. 
yeah. a, a lot of language use I think is uh, happens off stage uh, in the sense um, in history because we, we just can't see those aspects of childhood just doesn't appear that much in that often in the sources by the way so you've studied his translations um just a question like was his greek good by and large like yes i mean it's as i said you have to measure his his competence with with the standards of his time sure and bearing in mind that really like there was no there were really no tools that he could use it was i think Often people say that criticize medieval translations from Latin, from Greek to Latin, and often they, how to say, they, the problems of the text are put on this on the account of of not very good Greek knowledge. While it can be that it was just the method that they applied that makes the Latin text a bit awkward to read for us. Right. Also, you have to remember that for them, it was not only Greek that was a foreign language, but also Latin they learned as right. an acquired as an acquired language. Yeah, I mean, the, the translations can can look odd to us for a, a number of reasons. One might be if they're trying to do something very, very literal that ends up being very difficult to read in the in the Latin translation just because it's trying to reproduce the original. Another might be that they're doing a paraphrase um, or or they're distorting it for ideological reasons. That doesn't mean that they're not competent in Greek. It's just that, you know, they just have a different agenda. Uh, but no, I asked that question because I was struck, uh, you know, way back when I was working on the 15th century and looking at some Italian humanists, uh, you know, people you know, from Bruni to Valla and so on. They had real difficulty in reading Thucydides. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, everybody has difficulty in reading Thucydides, but like serious deficiencies in Greek. Like I, I would, I would put them at uh, you know maybe third, like third year Greek students that I have. Like, okay, you're okay, but you have a way to go. I was surprised because probably it was indeed maximum three years that they studied yeah, with yeah. somebody That's true. usually before they they. Uh, they yes. try their hands on the translation. But they had the advantage of, at that time, they were still learning like real Greek, like they were learning to, to speak it and pronounce it the way Greek speakers were pronouncing it at the time. This is before all sort of Erasmian nonsense, but anyway, um, <laughs> sorry. Um, okay, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the kinds of texts that Anastasius translated and why did he translate those kinds of texts? Yes, I mean, if you look at his list, it, of, uh, of the works that, that that took part in his project, it is a bit odd. Uh, I was told at my PhD fans that it's a boring list. <laughs> um, and indeed, if you approach it from this view of, he had this opportunity, he had, he had access like no one else to everything Greek that Rome might have offered or Constantinople. He has been to Constantinople and you know you come back with what the the, the passion of uh, Saint Demetrius and the life of John Calabite. Come on, didn't you find anything <laughs> more interesting? But you have to think that he was no classical scholar. He was no theologian. He was a very practical-minded uh, politician. So when I looked at his works, what is 
first of all, very striking is that it's very fresh. So authors are, you know, all Byzantine authors uh, from 7th to 8th, early 9th century. So it's almost contemporary text he translates. The genres um, are mostly saints' lives, especially at the beginning and the end of his career. Then when he gets involved uh, in more into the papal cultural politics, then he translates church a lot of uh, church documents, general councils, dossiers related to um, theological debates. He translates one major historical work by um, the, the Chronographia Tripartita of the three Byzantine historians. All he does, it seems to be concerned with, with the writing a universal church history or getting access to materials that a universal church history can be made. And also the more, most interesting, if you look at his authors, like the, the ones he, he chooses, um, they are often, or even mostly people who were involved in fighting Byzantine imperial heresies, people who were against monotheism, iconoclasm, uh, and also people from the Eastern provinces of the empire. So it's a kind of anti-canon, that he's, he mm. supports and this also might imply that his sources he found his greek text in rome rather than constantinople because it was in rome that maximus confessor or um, you know people like john moscos uh, or sophronius of jerusalem went and that's where you could find his writings um, yes so there's a bit of a bias in his selection toward uh, Byzantine authors who were dissident, that is, against the imperial regime of their time and its heresies, yes. uh, monothelite, uh, iconoclasm, you know, this sort of thing. Uh, so he's creating a selection of Byzantine texts that make Eastern imperial policy look bad. Yes, yeah. I think you can say that. Yes. And and um, you mentioned in some of your writings that there was also a Roman bias to some of the selection. Not just where he found the text, but in terms of their content. You asked whether he was, you know, he was ideologically biased. Certainly, he was not. He was not a neutral mediator. His his loyalties lay clearly with the papacy and Rome. Um, for example, when he translates the life of John the Calabite, he just takes this liberty of changing the the location from Constantinople to Rome. Okay. Which is is a is a major yeah a, a major um, difference if you think about it. So yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned at one place that he or he says that he's not just taking texts from the Greeks, but taking them back. What does that mean for him? Yeah. He argues, I think, also this this John the Calabite whom I mentioned. He claims that there was a Latin life at the at originally and then it was translated by the greeks and then he the the latins lost it and now he has to take it back um and then he says the same about some paper letters that that exist in the documentations that he translates from the church councils and there he probably is right i mean those letters probably were written originally in latin and he also mentions some other places that where there is no real ground to think that that the text just smells latin to him i think he did that uh, because he wants to 
downplay the role of, of Greek, uh, the prestige of Greek in relationship to Latin. He goes against this narrative of the Greek being so much richer than Latin, and that's why we turn to it. No, 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 it's not like that. We are just looking for the stuff we had anyway mm. already, and now we are we are taking it back. And also, there is this, uh, throughout the Middle Ages, actually, this kind of attitude of how the Greeks are bad custodians of their uh, literary heritage, and the Latins should take over this task from them because they are not doing a very good job out of it. Yes, you, you described that ideology very well. And it I, I found it very striking when I was reading your, your, especially the article that I'm going to cite in the description of the episode, because a very similar thing is happening on the other side of the empire, uh, Byzantine Empire in the East, uh, especially in the Abbasid Caliphate. Um, and before that, in the in the Persian Sasanian Empire, and its ideology was also being recycled through the Abbasids, which was namely that, um, I mean, on the Persian side, there was this idea, it goes back maybe to the 6th century, maybe a bit earlier, that Alexander the Great and all of the Greek learning that came after was kind of stolen from the Persian tradition. And so when Persians reappropriate Greek learning, they're just claiming back what was their ancestors. And on in more contemporary side, the the a, a number of Abbasid scholars. So this is the same exactly the same period, eighth uh, century, uh, late eighth, but primarily ninth century. And there's all this translation movement going on in Baghdad, where all these ancient Greek texts are being translated into um, Arabic, sometimes via Syriac. And the idea is that these Arabic language Muslim scholars and philosophers are the true custodians of this ancient learning, not the contemporary Byzantines, who, by the way, are Romans and not Greeks, who are Christians and not pagans, and who don't even speak the same language as ancient Greece. They speak what you know, you know, Rum, uh, and it seems that. It's a, it's almost kind of like a symmetrical ideological claim on the other side, and the Byzantines are sort of being squeezed out both ways. Now, what was going on in the Caliphate was a very extensive movement involving, you know, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people. Whereas in the West, it's much more limited. And I thought Anastasius was probably the clearest case of this, and uh, the most ideologically driven. I, I don't know. I just found it fascinating to find him doing the similar thing on the other side. Yes, and it's it's very funny that what you say that they say oh they are not real Greeks but they are Latin and they are Romans because it's precisely it that that it's a problem for for then Anastasius and the papacy. Exactly. On the one side, they're saying you're not Greeks, you're Romans, so we get to keep all this ancient stuff. And in in Rome, they're saying oh you're not Romans, you're Greeks, so we get to keep all this Roman stuff. It's yes. it's just really bizarre, but yeah, and it really shapes these ideologies down down to today, really. Um, but so I wanted to talk a little bit about Anastasius's outlook in all of this, because in addition to being a such a very interesting historical figure, he plays a very important role in shaping perceptions of Byzantium. And I it took me a long time to realize exactly how important he was. You know, uh, you know, like when you're when you're first learning about Western perceptions of Byzantium, you know, the texts that 
people normally go to is Lewitt Prand of Cremona, the embassy to yes. Constantinople is a 10th century text because it's just such a wonderful distillation of all this prejudice. It's great. <laughs> then you realize this text actually didn't have that much uh, impact uh, in, in the medieval West. It, it really was revived in modern times and became, you know, because it's a, it's a work of literary genius in, in that sense. And it, it's so accessible to students and, and so forth. But I'm beginning to realize that Anastasius was actually far more important in promoting certain ideologies about Byzantium, in particular through these two letters <laughs> that he wrote on behalf of one Pope and one emperor, Louis II. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about how it is that he came to ghost write these important letters? So one is from Nicholas I to the Eastern, the court in Constantinople, and one is from Louis II to um, the Eastern Emperor Basil I. Is that just part of his duties as librarian? Uh, I think so, yeah. It was his duty as a librarian to draft letters. Uh, it's very difficult to say, you know, where Anastasis ends and the Pope begins. It's very, very hard to disentangle individuals and institutions. Institutions. Right. So in this sense, it's also very difficult to say, was it, you know, chicken and eggs saying, was it Anastasius's view of the Greeks that maybe, you know, pushed Hadrian into certain directions or, or changed the position of the papacy or it was the position of the papacy that he just took over and uh, you know, expressed it in 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 an eloquent form. I think I think it's uh, that's that's just very very hard to say. Uh, very hard to say whether he really had some personal problems with whether he really knew Fortius as a character, whether he had any experience with the Greeks or it's just um, the official position, because yeah, he's he's. He's in the middle of a very complex geopolitical situation there. There is the Byzantine Empire, there is the Frankish Empire, and then there is Rome, the, the Papal Empire, if you want to call it that way. And they have several ongoing um, issues with each other at that time, but particularly the the the, the Patriarchate of Photius, which Nicholas I contested, it's one of them. But then there was the conversion of the Bulgarians, which right. was also um, a contemporary issue where first the Bulgarians turned to the Byzantines, then they turned back to the Romans, then they turned back to the Byzantines. So there is this contest uh, for the newly Christianized um, entity. So there are real political issues at stake. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about what those two letters lay out? Like, what's their programmatic ideology, especially re relating to the just the perception of the Eastern Empire? Because he makes some arguments that have resonated throughout the centuries, and, and you still find them in modern scholarship. People repeat these all the time. These letters contest Byzantium's importance on, on two planes. Nicholas's letter contests the, the statute of Constantinople on an ecclesiastical plane, and the letter of Louis, the status of Byzantine Empire. Um, there is this Romanness that is defined by, for Anastasius, it's defined by geography and language. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's 
the 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 most important and here you see how how immensely important still in the the conscious of everybody the 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 heritage of the roman empire is this this who is the real heir of the roman empire and so when when holding on to geography and and language both then he just he excludes the greeks you can't just go to Jerusalem at that time this resurrection of rome the idea of new roms all over the place constantinople as a new rome the frankish empire as the new roman empire these theories were coming up and he just he just speaks person for the old rome and uh, for for that latinity the language is key and also the geographical um, side of the city and then of course he gets two things at the same time with with, with the, if you focus on the language then then byzantium is not a real rome if you focus on the geography then also the carolingian empire cannot compete for this position at the end of the day the, the primacy of rome also is a as a religious uh, the the ecclesiastical leadership leadership they are after the which one of the patriarchates is the has the seniority right um, yeah yeah i mean i kept coming across these two claims in modern scholarship babe. i remember this as a student that byzantium wasn't roman because it didn't speak latin and byzantium wasn't roman because it didn't include the city of rome hmm. and these struck me as odd because these were never requirements for being roman in antiquity or late antiquity there were never legal requirements. There were never political requirements. I mean, Rome was a prestigious city, and you know, Latin was one of the languages of empire. And I just kind of wondered when did these become formal requirements? And if you actually trace it back, it it you really do end up with Anastasius as making the most articulate and forceful uh, statement, especially in the letter to um, by Nicholas, where they're going. He he really can't he obsesses over this issue of latinity in there and how these people who don't speak latin can't really be romans and uh, by the way have you read um uh, evangelos chrysos's article on the um you know you call latin a a barbarous and Scythian yes. tongue have, yes, have you read yes, that yes yes yeah where he <laughs> argues that because for byzantinists have always thought that Michael III, who had sent the letter to which Nicholas is replying, had called Latin a barbarous and Scythian tongue. And this was kind of like this Greek linguistic chauvinism of the Byzantines. And, and Vagelis argues that, no, this is probably a, a kind of snide reference to the quality of the Latin that was coming from the papal court. Mm -hmm. Like, please don't send us letters in such bad Latin. <laughs> <laughs> But Anastasius kind of turned that around into, ah, you don't like Latin at all. How can yes. you call yourself Roman? And I thought that was very clever reading. They were very ex exclusive also in the, the use of Latin. Uh, there is a certain refusal of understanding the need to to have Greek, if you look at official correspondence or, or the official state of affairs, the, the Byzantine court always had uh, interpreters, official interpreters, while right. the papacy never bothered, you know, they, they always improvised if, if there was a need for, for linguistic competence. 
they were relying on certain you know individual skills but they never institutionalized this and i think it is in a way intentional you make the effort if you want to right. understand what we we say you you make the effort the latin is the language of christianity yeah um, yeah that's a good so point it's a it's a linguistic imperialism I also liked what you said about the the authorship of these texts because you know we can never be entirely sure who's writing what and to what degree does the letter re represent institutional positions versus personal ones so we have these letters that are ostensibly by you know Nicholas and Louis II to Michael III and Basil I and and the Byzantine emperors are responding as well and there's this pervasive assumption that that Phocius is actually writing the letters on the Byzantine side and it's like this yeah. it's like a shadow discussion it's two ghosts yes. yes it's two ghosts it's Anastasius <laughs> and Phocius writing to each other pretending to be a pope and an emperor it's like it's crazy exactly yes. exactly now, yes yes i should say i've been in that situation as chair of department oh yes I, I sometimes get messages from faculty <laughs> and I suspect that the, the messages are being written by their spouses. <laughs> yes, because I just know who's said what, right, in the past. And, and because we have a number of, of couples in the department and whatever. And sometimes they write to each other and I'm pretty sure that it's the spouses writing to each other via their husband's or wives' emails. And, and I think... This is Phocius and Anastasius all over again. <laughs> anyway, okay, sorry. Uh, right. You know, I think sometimes they don't. They don't even. They don't even realize whether, you know, it's it's some some unconscious thing. I have this formula in my head. How did that get in my head? Did I come up with it, or I heard it, you know, from my secretary? Probably it's a yeah. It's, yeah. it's not 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 necessarily intentional, but uh, the um i want to say that after a lifetime of shadow conflict between photius and anastasius where it seems that there was a at the end a reconciliation attempt unfortunately we only have the letter of photius we don't have the which is mm. it sounds like a reply to anastasius we don't have the but it seems that he reached out to photius mm. because photius kindly declines the friendship offer saying referring to an old saying about opportunity uh, being somebody with hair only on the forehead and not on the back meaning that if the opportunity right you, you can't, grab, the it opportunity, you can't right. grab it but that's that's all we know about this uh, reconciliation attempt that that Anastasius tried and and Photius declined. Yeah, Photius is difficult to access sometimes because he the way he writes and yeah, I think he was a he was a more diplomatic character than he's often assumed to be. Um, and generally, I think he was interested in you know sort of reconciliation and and you know rhetorical diplomacy rather than perpetuating feuds but and eh, he's difficult to read and sometimes the you know letters you know these texts that we have they were just a written version of a communication that also had an oral component sometimes exactly yeah. yes so that's what you wanted on the record 
but you instructed the guy, you know, to tell him also. Yeah. Exactly. And also the things Anastasius says about Photos, he uses really strong language. Right. But yeah. it's hard to know whether he, he really yeah. meant it, you know. That's pretty That's harsh, a, pretty harsh polemic in there. Yeah. So if let's go back a little bit to Anastasius's um view of the uh, of the Byzantines. If so if they're not Romans and they're Greek, which is something that's hammered again and again in these texts. So what does he think of Greeks? So what are the quality the attributes that he that he ascribes to them? It depends. I think that's the <laughs> that's the best answer I can give you. It was not only him, generally Latins had these uh, conflicting ideas about Greeks. First of all, there were the ancient Greeks. Then there were the ancient Christian Greeks, patristic, wonderful authors, like authorities, no question, in all the West, Basil, Chrysostom. Then there were the contemporary Greeks, who were mostly untrustful and deceitful and always coming up with some heretical theology with whom you had to somehow always be careful. So in this sense, for 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 him, Fortius embodied this negative image of, of the Greeks who says one thing, but he means another, he always deceives something and, and he's, he's like a wolf, um, dangerous like a wolf and he's false um, even he even called him the antichrist himself um, wait wait he called Photius the antichrist the antichrist himself yes so <laughs> didn't catch that. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, they are all they're all these stereotypical images of the Greeks being deceitful untrustworthy and heretic and very cunning with, with whom you have to be careful there is for example Maximus the Confessor who, whose works he also translates and whom he really venerates uh, the divine theologian but of course Maximus Confessor left Byzantium, went to Rome, had strong connections with the papacy. So this kind of pro-Latinate, right. pro-papal attitude of, of a Greek that he, he really appreciates. Yeah, a good Greek is a Greek that recognizes the primacy of Rome. Yes, or uh, or one that lived five centuries. Or, uh, he, oh, yes. <laughs> Something yes. like that. So uh, good Greeks are you know, ancient Greeks, patristic authors, and contemporaries who recognize Rome, as sort of supreme in the church, whereas the other Greeks are, um, and he he coins a term in the letter for from uh, Louis II, which is kakodoxy, kakodoxia, that is they're they're kind of a source of all these heretics, of, he- of heresies, sorry, and uh, so they kind of trouble the church and disrupt you know the the good order that the, the papacy is trying to establish, and. You know what I found fascinating is is that it was precisely at that time, which was in the, in the 850s, I think, that the first texts against the errors of the Greeks began to be produced in the West. Yeah, and you, yes, and you know who requested those treatises to be written? Pope Nicholas the First. Nicholas the First, yeah. <laughs> so you you go full circle. Yes. yes uh, yeah. Yeah. And anyway. And, that genre would have a very long history ahead of it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Rome had had 
strong opinions and always was involved in the theological discussions in, in Byzantium, whether it was uh, the seventh century discussion on whether Christ had one will or two, divine and human, or the iconoclast uh, debates, uh, they they always uh, were involved. And then Nicholas uh, actually wrote a letter to Hinkmar of Rheims in which he requests all bishops in, in, in Western Francia to react somehow to the to the errors and the heresies of the Greeks and bring up arguments so that, that they can better fi fi fight the enemy, yeah. so to say. And uh, we don't know, actually, two, two of such treatises survived, Ratramnus of Corbis, Contra Gregorum Errores, and Aeneas, um, Bishop of Paris, wrote also one, Libera versus Grecos. And they were specifically asked to address <clears throat> issues like uh, you know, the filioque, whether, yes, the, right, the, right. the big theological question of where the, the Holy Spirit originates from, the celibacy uh, question, the baptizing out of river water, uh, eating cheese and eggs uh, in the fast, eating meat, shaving the beard, all kinds of uh, or down to very small differences between the practices of these churches. So, yeah, um, you know, it was, but I think that that these minor issues were all governed by the, 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 the main political conflicts that of the Bulgarians and the patriarchy of Potius and implicitly yeah. the, the, the primacy of Rome over, over um, Constantinople. So the the full it was already this conflict that then led to the separation of the churches was in full swing in in the ninth century, but it didn't. Yeah, at, um, yeah, it, it it all comes down to whether the two sides want to emphasize their differences or whether they want to put those aside or ignore them for the moment in order to do something together. And there are times when they chose to emphasize them, and they there are times when they chose to ignore them. Until the, I think the 13th century, I don't think they could ignore them anymore after that. Anyway, well, Rekha, th this was a, this was a great discussion. Um, I think when the history of the the image of Byzantium that's been constructed in the West is written, we we don't have such a thing yet. But I think when it's when it's written, I think that that this period and Anastasius in particular, um, and Nicol Anastasius slash Nicholas slash Louis slash who, whoever else we find will be a, will be a very big uh, chapter in it. I think they're very influential in, in setting the stage for the more adversarial options that the West had. Uh, so, you know, thank you for working on this and, and for sharing your knowledge of it with us. Thank you for the invitation, Anthony. Maybe we should write that book. <laughs> yes, no, I, I look forward to more work on this. So, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll keep that option open. Yeah. Bye, Thank Rekha. you again. Bye-bye.